Hello, and welcome to the Here, Here podcast. Our goal with these discussions is to explore new ideas that may help people use devices like cochlear implants to hear better. All right, trusted team, uh, Dr. Blake Papson and Dr. Sharon Cushing. Uh, we're um, talking uh, with Dr. Renee Gifford, who is a research audiologist, uh, has a, an amazing laboratory at Vanderbilt University. And I, I'm really thankful that uh, Renee was able to connect with us to do this podcast. You guys know Renee? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I've always been impressed that she's, you know, her stuff is so applicable clinically and not just, you know, seems to answer day-to-day questions. I've always admired that. And that's a great team down in Vanderbilt. For sure. And I really loved her description of why she became an audiologist. What you're going to hear from her is how much of her clinical um, interests and skills are guiding her research. I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Renee Gifford to our Hear Here podcast. Welcome, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. So, Renee, tell me what motivated you to become an audiologist and a hearing scientist. I was raised by my grandparents, and they were, you know, of the greatest generation. My grandfather fought in World War II. He was um, a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division and had actually been shot at uh, as he was parachuting over the Battle of Sicily. So he received a Purple Heart, um, and one of the wounds he brought back home with him wasn't so much physical as it was, um, you know, hearing loss. And he was um, almost completely deaf in one ear, and then he had a very precipitously sloping high-frequency hearing loss in the other. He was told there's really nothing medically or surgically that we can do for your hearing loss. You know, he tried a hearing aid or two and it just, you know, the the technology back then just wasn't what it is today. My grandfather didn't necessarily benefit from this technology. It affected, I would say, pretty much every facet of his life. Um, I mean, he didn't let it slow him down. You know, he was a civilian engineer at Lakehurst Naval Base. He had the great number of friends, great guy, um, very communicative, but he had to be looking right at you. And, you know, so I remember from a very young age, if I needed anything, like when I was little, I would grab his chin and kind of pull it over, like, look at me when I'm talking to you. Um, And I I think I got from a very early age, pretty good at facilitating communication for individuals with hearing loss, which of course has helped me today in my career. Thank you for sharing that. How did you become interested in cochlear implant research? Um, I, I actually didn't start working in this field, at least not um, cochlear implants per se. So as an undergrad, I did actually do a little bit of volunteering in Michael Dorman's lab. You know, he's a speech scientist, cochlear implant researcher, uh, you know, instrumental in some of the earlier uh, studies looking at uh, cochlear implant efficacy and signal processing and so forth. I found it interesting and fascinating, but I was really more just interested in how does the auditory system work? So went on, got my master's degree in audiology, went back and got a PhD, actually did my PhD work in um, normal hearing adults. And I was looking really at like nonlinear cochlear processing as effect of aging um, on the auditory system. I was really just sort of almost craving kind of getting back into how can we help individuals with hearing loss? What can we do to really help them with communication? I remember during the end of my PhD work, um, I was talking with Michael 
And he started mentioning, you know, they're implanting patients with cochlear implants and able to preserve some of that low frequency hearing if they have it. And that is all he had to say. I was hook, line, and sinker pulled in. And I was like, I have to do my postdoctoral fellowship in this lab. I mean, it was just fascinating. And that continues to motivate me. I want to talk about your interest first in hearing restoration. This is such an amazing topic to think about where we've come from in cochlear implantation, because we started um, by really providing cochlear implants for only those people who had no residual hearing either ear. Maybe give us a little sense of why we've come to providing cochlear implants to people who have some residual hearing in one or both ears. I mean, we really have come a long way, haven't we? Traditional, conventional cochlear implant candidates, but they're able to bridge those two worlds and really benefit from that electric and acoustic stimulation, right? They can detect your sound. They can hear that temporal envelope. They might even be able to get a little bit of periodicity information, but all of that high frequency information that really contains um, the meaningful, crisp, fricatives, affricates, things that really make speech clear and meaningful, it's just not there. It's amazing that with longer experience with cochlear implants, we've begun to see children using their cochlear implants who have much more ease of listening than children who we thought had so much more residual hearing. This made us think that those hearing aid users might benefit from cochlear implantation. But how can we make sure that the residual hearing these individuals have won't be compromised by the surgery that's involved in cochlear implantation? Oh yeah. So I, this is of course the million dollar question, right? Preserve no matter what they have, not even just for hearing purposes, but you know, preservation of those uh, intercochlear structures, because of course we know a proportion of people are going to require revision surgery over time, especially our little ones who are getting implanted before the, you know, before 12 months of age and going to be living probably a hundred years. I would presume they're going to need at least one revision, if not a couple over a lifetime. They try to approach every surgery as if it were a hearing preservation surgery. Um, you know, so um, minimally traumatic surgical techniques, uh, minimizing drilling into the otocapsule, um, trying to go through the round window if, whenever possible, um, just careful, slow, steady insertion of the electrode array. But of course, you know, there are times I've been in the OR where a surgeon will say, well, I guarantee I didn't preserve hearing on that one. You know, like for example, maybe the electrode array flipped out and they had to put it back in and the hearing was perfect, right? And, and conversely, I've seen where it, there wasn't any problems whatsoever. They had steroids, they did everything and they lost their hearing. In fact, some of the, the children that I have um, in a clinical capacity and in the laboratory who have this high frequency hearing loss, who have cochlear implants with hearing preservation, they're our highest performing patients. families come to me and say, um, will you preserve hearing? I say, no, I mean, yeah. I might, but it won't be there when he's 40 or she's 40. Uh, and, and that shocks them. And maybe they go see Sharon and she promises to preserve it, but I don't, no. I promise, <laughs> I promise to um, do everything possible to preserve the cochlea and its integrity. And oftentimes we do, you know, we do preserve the hearing, but the families come and say, will you preserve uh, the hearing? And the answer is, uh, no, I'll try, but no, that's not the, the game here is the child needs a cochlear implant, but it's interesting. So I, I am, I'm, I'm fascinated and I love uh, the work that Renee and her team do because I can't do it. 
frankly, I'm jealous because, of course, uh, of the thousands of kids that we've looked at here, a fraction of them have usable low-frequency residual. And if they do, they've not gained the auditory experience to know what to do with residual usable uh, hearing. Uh, it's one of those things that we, we don't get to play with here in the infant world. Yeah, I wonder, um, when you have a family that comes in, the child has um, a high-frequency hearing loss and really good hearing in the low frequencies, what are their concerns about, you know, the child's future? They have a lot of concerns, right? And, and I think that that is actually one of the clinical scenarios that's the hardest to counsel around because their hearing is giving them something more than what we see in our congenitally deaf babies. And so they are so low, both as patients and as parents, to give up what they no. Um, and I think it speaks to, again, what Blake was saying is that you've got these two systems. So it's a best of both worlds scenario where the implant hearing is giving you something and the, the residua is giving you something, but how do you access them both? The discussion about preserving residual hearing uh, through the cochlear implant surgery is really fascinating, but if it can be done, Renee Gifford talks then about how you can use the residual hearing along with the cochlear implant. So take a listen to this. One of the biggest cues that we get that's beneficial to that electric and acoustic stimulation or EAS that we often refer to is just fundamental frequency. So we know that's just the glottal pulse. And so that's how fast our vocal cords or vocal folds are vibrating and having the ability to access that information, which is, you know, about a hundred Hertz roughly for um, adult males, approximately 200 for adult females and up to 500 for children. So we're talking really low frequency information. We can provide that to them reliably because that information is not well preserved in the cochlear implant signal, as you know. Um, having access to that really allows people to segregate out the speech stimulus from the background noise, which tends to be more aperiodic. I wanted to talk to you about was this idea that we were going to have this weird presentation of sound through acoustics and then acoustic sound that's translated into these electrical pulses so that there'd be a discordant input provided by the two different hearing, electric and the implant, acoustic with the hearing aid. What do you think of that? I, I remember hearing the clinician saying, you know, well, there are two very different signals and the brain's going to really have a difficult time, you know, integrating that information. And we really want you to focus on this new signal. So we're going to have you not wear your hearing aid. And it made sense at face value, but the reality is the brain is remarkably plastic and can take those two very different signals. I've spent probably the majority of my professional career looking at people who are combining hearing aids and cochlear implants. We can still preserve that hearing, that acoustic hearing that's going to give them a boost, even if it's in just one ear. Do you think there's any difference between, you know, trying to combine the electric acoustic between the ears as opposed to within one ear? Uh, I, I don't. Um, there's no evidence that it's different. So we did a study a few years ago where we looked at that exactly. So within an ear, as well as combining across ears. And the amount of benefit that one received was essentially um, equivalent. You know, there's lots of evidence to believe that within an ear, it would be more beneficial because you don't have to, you know, integrate the time delay information necessarily across. I'm always amazed that we even thought about combining residual and electric hearing. Yeah, so it, it was really clunky in the beginning. 
And many of our patients were fitted with um, ITE hearing aids with a behind the ear, um, or in some cases, a body warrant. One of the studies we did way early on during my postdoc, which I, I absolutely loved this study, we looked in a group, I think it was 12 or 13 individuals who had hearing preservation in the implanted ear. And we looked at their auditory detection, you know, psychophysical detection, as well as their um, masking thresholds using these Schroeder phase maskers. And so what we found was we were able to do this preoperatively and postoperatively in these 12 or 13 individuals. And what we found is that for about 80% of the sample, I recall that their threshold elevation postoperatively was within 10 dB, but everybody showed a dramatic difference in their mass threshold patterns, which tells us that something else is going on right at the level of the cochlea that we're not capturing from the audiogram. I was actually really kind of discouraged by that finding, but then I start thinking, well, what are they actually gaining from that acoustic hearing to add it with that electrical stimulus? And it, again, if you can just detect or have access to fundamental frequency information, even just that cue alone, or even just having that low frequency information across the two ears providing ITD information. It can be so, so powerful for that listener. Um, speech and noise, localization, spatial release from masking, all of the above. It is fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating when you're listening to music does visual perception play a role when you're watching the orchestra? Does it make a difference? The upshot is that the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the smartest engineer is not nearly as smart as the dumbest cochlea and auditory system. So I think it's a good place here to just sum up what this discussion has been about. We've talked about uh, the importance of the residual hearing that can be used along with the electric hearing um, provided by a cochlear implant. And Renee has convinced me that it is so important to be able to provide uh, the fundamental frequencies of voice through the acoustic hearing and maybe even get access to some binaural cues. In this next part, she's going to talk really to audiologists about how they might be able to do this in practice. So Sharon has a comment first. You know, and, and Renee talks about fitting an in-the-ear hearing aid. And I was tired, like <laughs> just thinking about the audiologic prowess that would it would take to do this. And, and perhaps, again, it speaks to the fact that we're only developing, partly through Renee's work, the tools to do this properly, efficiently um, in the clinic. So fitting of EAS devices, um, one of the first things I would encourage everyone is to make sure that for the acoustic component that's connected to the cochlear implant sound processor, absolutely critical that we verify that with real ear measures. I'm going to say, I think this is a non-negotiable. Second, um, the where we put the cutoff frequency, so for the, for the cochlear implant. So while there's not a hard and fast rule, one thing we have found is that almost probably 95% of people, if you can ensure that the first formant is coming through the passband of the, of the electric stimulus or through the cochlear implant, but if we can even provide that first formant information through the implant and have a little bit of overlap, this does tend to yield the highest level of performance. Of course, I think we still have a lot of work to do because these studies are, you know, based on 
20-ish people here and there, 20 people here. But I think we've been probably over-relying on the acoustic information and under-relying on the electric in these EAS patients. We, you know, we're seeing preservation rates that we would have thought unheard of even a decade ago. So we might have people who have, let's say they go into surgery with 70, 80 dBHL, even in the high frequencies, right? So that's technically aidable. And we could see that that's completely preserved. And so technically the acoustic component would allow you to provide amplification there, but do they really need it? So I always tell my students, the main goal is fundamental and ITD information, that low frequency interoral time differences. We know that ITDs are really most robust below about a thousand Hertz. So I do, even if we have the ability to amplify it, I do not amplify beyond a thousand Hertz. We want to provide as much electric as possible, maintain the acoustic, maybe provide a little overlap, and of course, verify that acoustic amplification. I think this reminds us a little bit about the limitations of some of the diagnostic work that we do. Maybe we could think about using some of these other more nuanced tests of hearing um, a different frequency resolution and so forth to make decisions around whether to intervene and with what device. What do you want to tell clinicians about that? I think you you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the audiogram is a great tool, but it's it's one tool. And it's really hard to put so much stock in that when it really is just tonal detection. And we no one ever really comes in and says, I'm really having a hard time detecting sounds. You know, no, they're like, I can't understand people, especially in noise. And so the audiogram just isn't necessarily very useful for that. I remember explicitly this woman coming in and she was probably actually probably younger than I am today, but I remember thinking she was, you know, an older middle-aged woman. And she was complaining that she was really struggling understanding people in noise. And so I did her, you know, her audiogram, speech audiometry, of course, in quiet. Um, and it was normal. And I came in and I was so proud of that. I was like, congratulations, this is good news. You know, you've got normal hearing. And I remember her just being like, but I'm really struggling there likely is something we could be thinking about, right? I mean, we know as we age, we start to struggle more. And just because someone has normal hearing, they could have had, you know, 20, 30 dB threshold elevation and still be within the range of normal because they started at minus 10. And so I, I, I replay that visit in my head. It happened, you know, 20 years ago. I'm sure the woman doesn't remember that at all, but I do. And um, I think it's a way in which we can be starting to rethink the way we approach diagnostic audiology, counseling, use of, um, you know, over-the-counter types of hearing devices as that's opening up. Um, there's so many different options. Renee makes a really good point about the need to test and identify dead regions right, where you think you have some hearing, um, because there are thresholds there, but really those thresholds haven't got anything to do with some real usable sensory cells in that part of the cochlea. They're gone. It's another part of the cochlea that's responding. So let's hear a little bit more about what Renee thinks about these dead regions in the cochlea. And so these are regions of the cochlea where there's little or no surviving inner hair cells. There is no point in amplifying that acoustic region because it's not going to get transmitted to the auditory nerve and up to auditory cortex. We see that there's these dead regions, but, you know, but because of off-frequency listening, you can get a pretty decent audiometric threshold, making sure that we're really just transmitting information in the area of the cochlea that's primed to receive it. So, I mean, if it were up to me, we'd be doing dead region testing 
in the clinic on every single person. Um, and it really is only less than a five minute test. Basically, you're providing a masking noise that is basically forcing the listener to focus on the frequency region at the target. So you're just masking, you know, above and below slightly. So it's sort of like a notch noise area and you're really focusing. And because often we know, um, especially with these high frequency losses, if you increase the level of the incoming state signal high enough, it's not just upward spread of masking. There's some downward spread as well. So to this point, I think we've talked about such interesting things, the last being clinical um, ideas of how to look for problems in the cochlea and how to fit devices like hearing aids and cochlear implants often together in the same person who has hearing loss uh, in order to help them hear in difficult listening situations. In the next part, we turn our attention to the placement of the cochlear implant in the inner ear or cochlea and how important that might be for users to hear clearly. How much of an effect do you think where you put the cochlear implant has on children's outcomes? Very little. I mean, there's people who will spend hours talking about peri versus antimedialar electrodes. I, I don't give myself that much credit for that much ability to affect outcome by surgical placement. Now, careful surgical placement, yes. Um, soft surgical technique, yes. Uh, minimization of complications, absolutely. Um, restoring potential for reimplantation, 100%. Uh, care that the electrodes don't extrude and that there's closure of the middle ear space, absolutely, 100%. Uh, fixation of the device, absolutely, got them all. But electrode, nope, sorry, don't buy. You? I think it depends on what outcome you're measuring. Yeah, I agree with that. You're underselling the importance of what you do when you put that cochlear implant in in the operating room because we we do know that, you know, there are going to be a different kind of stimulation when that electrode array is close to the middle of the cochlear or the medialis than when it's further away. I look, I completely agree with you that we are in the process now with uh, intercochlear electrophysiology and uh, real-time imaging and thinner, more discrete medialar hugging electrodes. Uh, I, I think that we're at the point where we're very close to robotic insertion with real-time uh, we'll get, we're, we're going to get better. And absolutely that will allow discrete stimulation. And then we're off to the races. We know that every single patient is going to, even if they're like the very best performer, I struggle with speech and noise the issues is, of course, channel interaction or this spread of electrical excitation, right? We have these um, electrodes that are very close together. They're in this fluid field medium, this highly conductive fluid. And so you present an electrical signal and it spreads. And so we're not getting that fine frequency resolution that we get with normal hearing or even, you know, less um, mild, moderate hearing loss. If we can actually see where these electrodes reside in each of the scala and what's the sort of distance between, you know, the center of the contact to the nearest uh, medialar surface where those, you know, spiral ganglia, those primary auditory neurons are located, could we potentially start to come up with these algorithms that selectively deactivate electrodes to try to help channel independence or make, you know, each channel that is provided a little bit more spatially selective? Our very first person was, you know, a great inspiration because she came in and there were two electrodes that was recommended that were deactivated. 
And she had, so she was a bilateral implant recipient. One ear um, was like, she was getting 90% plus on everything. And so we just turned off those two electrodes. And I said, you know, and now we're going to see you back in a month and we'll repeat the testing. She sent me an email in the morning and she said, I don't know what you did, but I was able to talk to my mother on the phone with my poor ear. And I swear I heard as well as I did my other ear. She went from like 42-ish percent CNC to like 84 overnight. Now it's not a panacea and it doesn't work that way for every single person. I sort of feel like that was like the science gods just making things a little bit easier on that first one. So we would get encouraged to keep going. Um, but it, it has been really a great um, research focus. We are doing a study on this in children. Um, we've enrolled close to 20. Well, actually we have 40 some children who we saw in the first phase. And now we're in a clinical trial where we have about 20. So far, we don't really see a decrement for any of the children. And we either see sort of, you know, equivocal performance or uh, significant improvements in various tasks of auditory processing, spectral temporal processing, and speech understanding. So it's really exciting. I just absolutely love it. Well, I think you're, you give such a nice example of how clinical research happens. There's an idea and then, you know, we try it and then we go into a full-fledged study and protocol and get a sense of data across so many different individuals. Break it down. Audiologists are the interface with these families. And so, you know, anything that we move forward from a research perspective or anything that is going to be delivered by audiologists in terms of programming. I think audiology are, are human. You're right. They're the interface mm -hmm. between the engineering and the humanity. And so the research that they direct is not nearly as much um, a pocket protector, white, white coat, um, as uh, uh, other uh, other sort of labs, M many of those labs, of course, produce stuff that's very important to us. But audiologically driven research is um, is pretty much the focus. I mean, I, I, that's why we've built our entire program around it, not on um, uh, you know basic science, molecular engineering, uh, or engineering. It's it's an audiologic based thing because this is humans looking after humans. I'm the first one to say, is this applicable? Is this our question? Is this about humans or is this about a, a science publication? Because I'm not interested in that. Well, I think that's also true that once you have that training um, to think about research and to incorporate research as a clinician and as an audiologist, then you're going to be able to face somebody help in a different way, hopefully a more nuanced way. I think that really comes very clear um, with Renee because she she really is in the clinic and in the lab um, and melds the two together so well. So that brings us to the end of our chat with Dr. Renee Gifford. And Renee, I want to thank you so much for all of your insights that you've brought to this podcast, talking about the impact of hearing loss and the use of acoustic with electrical hearing through cochlear implants, how um, audiologists might approach using uh, the two together uh, and what they can do for people coming into the clinic. And I'm thinking about the advances that we can make in um, research and translating it back. So Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience, all the work that you've done, and the innovative 
thinking uh, that you've provided. Thank you, Karen. This was a lot of fun. And I just love that you're doing this podcast. We could probably talk about this all day. It's just so exciting. And I just hope to motivate people to get more excited about this and maybe even uh, motivate someone to pursue a career in auditory research. This concludes this episode of the Hear Here podcast. I hope you really enjoyed our discussion here with Dr. Renee Gifford and hope to see you back enjoying another episode of our podcast soon. You can catch other episodes of the Hear Here podcast. There's a link on our website. Search Archie's Cochlear Implant Lab, SickKids Research Institute, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hear Here podcast is put together by me, Dr. Karen Gordon, with my colleagues at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, Drs. Blake Papson and Sharon Cushing, with a tremendous production and advisory team, Sophia Olazola, Rachel Better, and Maria Kahn. Wonderful music was composed and performed by Dr. Blake Papson. Mm-hmm.